we've seen in the last few years, and it started before the pandemic, that accepting or not accepting a particular scientific conclusion has become an ideological badge of identity. Welcome to the PolicyNet podcast by the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab. This is the place where top figures come to talk data and solutions that would reset us along a more equitable and smart path. Today we have a high-level episode. The host is Gabriela Ramos, UNESCO's Assistant Director General for Social and Human Sciences. The guest is Peter Glückman, the President of the International Science Council. Together they discuss how polarization infiltrated science and is stirring up the public trust in it. The conflation of science with political ideology is very harmful. The effective polarization that's going on in many societies has somehow kidnapped science into it. We see this paradox between science and scientific research and outcomes being so important to address any challenge that we confront. But at the same time, we see this declining trust in science. They talk about overexposure to science and ways of navigating it all under the pressure of social media. Much of it is due to the externality created by the presence of social media, privatized and very polarized media in general, and the echo chambers created by the attention economy. The solution is not easy. We talk about promoting education, critical thinking, and so forth. But equally important is to return societies to be able to have civil discourse. They dispel some of the myths around science or evidence-based decision-making. We need to be get far, far better to understand that science alone is not the basis of many decisions. The real skill of science advice is saying what we don't know as much as what we know and saying this is what science suggests are the options, but you must take broader considerations into account we have seen attacks on scientists to influence the outcomes of scientific endeavors for certain purposes. Some call it the policy-based research instead of the evidence-based policy. You're listening to the PolicyNet podcast. Peter, let's start with a very important issue that I know you have been grappling with, which is this paradox between science and scientific research and outcomes being so important to address any challenge we confront. But at the same time, we see this declining trust in science, a trend that has been labeled as a rebellion against science or a crisis of expertise. And a telling example of this is the U.S., where 64% of Americans trust science in 2021. The path has been declining since 1975, where it reached 70%. So why is trust in science eroding? And importantly, why such an erosion should concern us? You rightly point to the paradox that science has never been more important as shown in the response to the pandemic. But at the same time, the pandemic highlighted a number of the issues around the position of science in society. I think we need to stand back and say, in general, trust in elites has declined in recent years. Trust in government, trust in institutions of government, and academia is seen as an elite. And so, In general, while academia has had a higher trust level than, say, governments and governmental institutions, when trust affects one aspect of the elite community, then it impacts on science as well. And that's the first point. The second point is the relationship between science and society has always been complex. Science 
informs society and governments, but the decisions that are made are made by society and governments on much more than just science alone. And therefore, how science is communicated and related to decision-making by society matters a lot. And I think in a number of jurisdictions, hubris returned to the science community. They showed off what they knew without admitting to what they didn't know. There was a rhetorical power to numbers that was used by modelers and so forth. And in the early days, that was important. But we also, and remains important, that we state what we know, but we must get better at also explaining what we don't know. And I think how we communicate matters a lot. Science does not have all the answers. And therefore, when we exhibit hubris, we will get a response to it. But I think there's a deeper issue. Science always has had an interaction with politics, with a small p, but what we've seen in the last few years, and it started before the pandemic with climate change, with genetic modification, with a number of aspects of knowledge, that accepting or not accepting a particular scientific conclusion has become an ideological badge of identity. And I think we've seen in the past that the science related to genetic modification or genetic editing might have been ignored. There are other reasons why societies might not want to use those technologies, but to blame it on the science of them is, is wrong. The issues have been philosophical and ecological and so forth. And similarly, in climate change, science has been contested, usually for reasons of selfish economics, if we're honest, rather than for reasons of the science. And thirdly, in COVID, the conflation of science with political ideology was very harmful. And so in all these, whether it's from the left or right, the effective polarization that's going on in many societies, whereby people are distinguished by their attitude to others, has somehow kidnapped science into it. And that is why science is in a difficult position. I could not agree more with you, Peter. It's not only the question of science, but how do we use and deploy science and government take up uh, the findings uh, to advance their own policy goals. In France, for example, we know that uh, science has a very high regard. 82% of French say that they trust science in general. But the figure drops to 68% when it comes to scientific experts advising the government. So this question of science being polluted by interjecting with the government structures might be one of the elements that we need to consider here. So let me take you to one specific issue that probably is linked to what you are commenting, but that gets a more complex kind of answers. Maybe the trust in science has also been eroded by very unequal outcomes that we have. The increase in inequalities, the distributional impact of decision-making, the climate crisis. It's not about uh, whether we use science or not, but the perception in the public opinion is that whatever we have done with science has not really delivered a great outcome. So how do we answer to that? Science has delivered great outcome. It delivered the Green Revolution 30 years ago. It's delivered vaccine at an unheralded and unprecedented rate to at least ameliorate the pandemic. Uh, science in so many ways is making the lives of many people better. 
but we're dealing, as I said earlier, with gross and growing inequalities in the world. And that's fundamentally a failure of the political system to create a system that seems fair, both between the global north and the global south, and within countries of the global north. So, I mean, a lot of the issues that we've seen recently in terms of the squeeze of the middle class and global north countries, the loss of fairness. Now, as I said right at the beginning, science can help, but knowledge has also helped create some of the problems. All said and done, ultimately, climate change is about the development of knowledge about industrial and combustion engines in the 19th century. And you can argue that the growth in population has been brought around by many forms of public health and other forms of science. So there's many ways in which you can look at science as an upside or a downside. But I think in general, if one looks at the conditions of the world, it's better than it was 100 years ago because of the contributions of many forms of science, including the social sciences. The fact is that it's also true that uh, some of the evolution of scientific knowledge in terms of dissecting into very, very narrow fields of expertise had probably confounded some of the answers that uh, need to have a multidisciplinary approach. I couldn't agree with you more. We have yet to understand fully how to look at transdisciplinarity. The science system as it stands now rewards individual activity well and monodisciplinary activity well. It's actually, if you're like me, a transdisciplinarian, very hard to get work funded. We've got a long way to go in building the science system that will meet the objectives of society. And that's not just a fault of the science community. It's a fault of the science system. It's also the expectation of governments, which have put so much focus on uh, narrow output expectations of the science system that it's reinforced itself. But also, we've got a long way to go to find a way of equitably funding research across jurisdictional boundaries so the global south scientists can engage as well and in true partnership with global north scientists. Too much of the science funded in the south is done primarily for the benefit of the donor country. We need new mechanisms, which is one of the things the International Science Council is working on, to truly engage the global south as the lead partners in international collaborative research. And we need new mechanisms and new models to achieve that. Let me take you to something else, which I consider also is uh, probably having a quite high impact on how science is perceived and how science is used uh, in general. And this is a question of the digital transformation. How do you think that we could really advance in this era of massive information and misinformation to ensure that people and institutions are capable to discern what is good science and what is not? When we go to the issues of distrust of science, much of it is due to the externality created by the presence of social media, privatized and very polarized media in general, and the echo chambers created by the attention economy, which the social media have created. Clearly, we have a lot of information out there, but the ability to separate out what is good information from bad information is for all of us very limited. We take all sorts of shortcuts to do so, assuming, for example, that a source like Wikipedia is reliable, when in fact, there are many areas on that source as there are on other sources. We know the problem, 
the solution is not easy. We talk about promoting education, critical thinking, uh, and so forth. But equally important is to return societies to being able to have civil discourse. And if we immediately polarize into, I believe this, no, my facts are right, your facts are wrong, and are not able to have civil discourse on important matters, then we're in real trouble. And the truth is, as a large part, because of the technological shifts of the last two decades, the ability to have civil discourse where there is disagreement has gone. And that's the fundamental issue that societies are grappling with. But of all the social transformations that needed, that may be the most urgent. Underneath all of this is the issue that societies handle technological change gradually. That's been our history. You know, even something as dramatic as the introduction of printing took a number of decades to really absorb. And of course, there was great contention with the Reformation and so forth, and a lot of pain associated with what was a slow transformation. We're now in the presence of continual and rapid change and transformation, driven largely by technological developments. We have no mechanisms either within country or across countries, and across countries is increasingly important because most of these technologies transcend jurisdictional boundaries to adaptively and preemptively think about how to manage innovation, regulation of innovative technologies. We need to have an adaptive regulatory pathway. That's what the precautionary principle was about, was adaptive and preemptive regulation. We've not managed to use that approach to the digital and related sectors for many reasons, not the least being the dominant role of the private sector in bringing these technologies forward at great speed and countries not wanting to be seen to lose in the innovation and economic gain. But if we think of the technologies that are yet to emerge and are likely to emerge, we're only at the beginning of an innovation pathway in which societies will be compromised by these rapid technological changes if we don't think about it further. So we have a hard, hard problem ahead, made much harder because of the very separated world, that fractured world that's evolving around where the place of technology in different societies. I could not agree more with you, Peter. But let me then ask you, what is the role of the scientist? What is the role of the researcher? Haven't they also been in their ivory towers without really getting into contact with the public, with the communities they serve, to try to understand what people feel, how they can frame their research better? And then I will add another question, because we have also seen a lot of attacks against scientists protecting scientists on the one side, but the, on the other hand, the, the responsibilities of the scientific community also to be more engaged with the public. Scientists are human beings, and therefore there's a variety of personalities and skill sets by definition. Some will never be great communicators. Some great communicators are not professional scientists, but there are many scientists who are good communicators. But it comes back, scientists, large, at least if we're talking about public sector scientists, work within the framework of the system. And the system includes their institutions, whether the university or researchers in research institute. It includes the funding system. And if the incentives don't encourage that and reward that, scientists will go 
like any other human being, where the incentives drive them. And sadly, most universities do not reward adequately engagement and community engagement in co-design, in citizen science, in transdisciplinary activity, which is very time-consuming and very hard, requires particular skills, takes time. It can take a year to build a relationship between a scientist and a community to do something that might be relatively sensitive. The community has to have trust. They're going to get value out of the science as well as assisting the scientist to get a paper published in a scientific journal or to get a promotion at his or her university. This is a systems issue in which the scientists will respond to what exists. And therefore, I think there's a fundamental need for governments and foundations who largely determine the shape of the incentives and the universities, which are many, most countries are, uni- are government-driven, to think about whether the incentives in the science system are right. In many ways, the science system has become too much of an industry, at least in developed countries, whereby the scientists respond to the signals so that they will get a paper out in a journal of high impact, a very doubtful concept in my view, which then leads them to getting a promotion and makes them easier to get another grant. And so the system winds on. And many people have suffered in that, particularly women scientists, minority scientists. The system has not worked well for them. So there are many aspects to this that are there. I'm the biggest proponent of promoting science engagement with society. That that doesn't mean making every scientist into a communicator. It means the system needs to change. So those attributes of science communication are recognized as being important. It's quite a call to order what you are putting in front of us, Peter, because the reality is that uh, indeed the rewards, the incentives, the structures of the science ecosystems as we know them are not calling for this engagement or for this co-design, which I believe is so important. This is an area where I've worked a lot, both in international science collaboration and in community collaboration and research in a number of countries, particularly in New Zealand. It takes time and it takes extra money. It's more expensive to collaborate than it is just to work within one laboratory. There are resources involved. Involving a community and doing it properly, not in a patronizing way, requires time. And time is a cost to whoever employs the individuals involved. And therefore, in promoting these activities, the system needs to recognize that it needs to pay for them. And that, I think, is one of the fundamental issues. One of the, you know, there are many scientists who go well beyond the call of duty to engage in these activities, but the system of whole doesn't recognize or reward them for doing so or pay them to do so. That's the point, and I think this requires a fundamental redesigning of some of the systems that are producing these very important endeavors. But let me ask you the other question, which is protection of science, the right to science. We have here at UNESCO the 2017 recommendation on science and scientific research, and more and more we have seen attacks on scientists or trying to influence the outcomes of scientific endeavors for certain purposes. Some call it the policy-based research instead of the evidence-based policy. So are you concerned about this being at the International Science Council? Are you concerned about these trends against uh, scientists? 
Yes, I am, but I don't want to overstate it. First of all, scientists are citizens of countries, and they have rights in many countries as citizens to say what they think, whether it's related to their scientific expertise or more broadly. And scientists have gotten into trouble in that regard, particularly in countries that do not encourage free speech. Secondly, you are absolutely right. It is a temptation of many policymakers to want to see science that will support a predetermined idea. And it's the cognitive biases of all of us to want to see ideas that are evidence that will support our biases. Unfortunately, in a world where cognitive biases can fuel anger, a a digital world in which Twitter and other means magnify our biases into more emotional stresses, scientists who produce data and evidence that is not convenient are more likely to be harassed and their ability to have a civil discourse is discounted. Clearly, one would like to have a civil discourse with people that don't agree with you. But if that discourse is going to turn ugly, as it might do in cases where there's severe effective polarization, no wonder the scientists get intimidated because that's not their job. Their job is to achieve knowledge. And one of the things we've not done and what has got obscured in recent years is being clear about what science is and what science is not. And the scientists themselves, of course, have sometimes been a little bit arrogant about this. Science tells us things that we know. It also tells us a lot about what we don't know. It also is highlights uncertainties and probabilities rather than, in most cases, being definitive. But the decisions that, sci- that society makes, whether it's as an individual or through the collective of representative or other, democracy or other forms of government, are based on much more than science. They're based on all sorts of values, propositions, and values dimensions. Now, not pretending that science is values-free, it's not. But the decision-making of society is based on a lot of other considerations other than science alone. And we need to get far, far better to understand that science alone is not the basis of many decisions. And therefore, we need to get better and engaging with society and with the policy community, recognising that they have other values-based considerations to take into account. And I say that the real skill of science advice is saying what we don't know as much as what we know and saying this is what science suggests are the options ahead of you, but you must take broader considerations into account in making your decision, except under very unusual circumstances. And of course, acute emergencies are one of those circumstances where the relationship between science advice and decision-making is more intimate. I would like to close our discussion, Peter, with an additional reflection, which is whether science is really producing all what we need to deliver on the Sustainable Development Goals. There is still this debate of whether science uh, and investment in science are defined by other criteria that is not really linked to the very great challenges we are confronting. I would like you to comment on that. If we really need to invest more in scientific endeavors that will help us to deliver on very specific areas of the SDGs. Uh, We know that, at least in the economic field, Efficiency has really pervaded the most important goals and not uh, equity or sustainability, but that's one point. 
And then we would love to hear more about your plans because we know you are making a very great imprint in the International Science Council to promote these endeavors, but also to promote a more science-informed policymaking, encouraging what we said at the beginning, more multidisciplinarity, but also to ensure that we get the best out of the scientific endeavors to the challenges we face. Sustainable development goals remain an ambitious and key goal. They describe a world in which both human development and planetary state would be much better than what it is now. Science is an enormous part to play, but sadly, we need to analyse what actually happened. The goals were put out there with targets which were rather obtuse in many cases, allow, and they're very broad, allowing anybody invested in any scientific endeavour to claim that they were doing work aligned with the sustainability development goals. And of course, there are some areas of basic science and basic technology in which a lot could be done and has been done that could be applied to develop the goals. But the goals are not individual. They're interconnected and interrelated in many complex ways. And the real need is the science to be translated in an interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary way to have impact on society, on the environment, and on the economy, and on the multilateral system itself. And that has been harder because most science is funded at a single jurisdictional level, with the exception of the European Union treating Europe as a single jurisdiction in this case. Whereas much of what was needed needed to span across jurisdictions and bring different disciplines and different expertises together. It needed transdisciplinary science. It needed multidisciplinary science at a global scale or at a regional scale. And sadly, when one looks at analysis, very small amount of funding in the global science system is available for that activity. And even where there is potentially funding in those areas, Often it's predetermined by the funder, be it a foundation or the government, the, kind, the narrow area of research that they're interested in. That's why the International Science Council has a commission exploring what kind of models might be needed to actually get that multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary research at scale and at speed and in places where it's really needed rapidly because the current funding systems sadly will not get us there. We need a much more coherent and strategic and I think mission-led approach to get there. We see that the next stage of its development is to work on the interface with the multilateral system. As the global voice, a voice has no role unless it's heard. And therefore we need to work and we're working with many of the major UN agencies and with the UN itself to find ways to actually improve the access of the multilateral system to the scientific community from across the world, global north, global south, global east, global west, and ensuring a plurality of inputs. If we're to address the issues of the global commons, be it climate change, social cohesion and conflict, risks of future pandemics, and indeed the ongoing pandemic, which is far from finished, biodiversity loss, the many other issues of inequality, inequity, and so forth. We need to ensure a plurality of inputs 
into the various aspects of the multilateral system, be it the UN system, be it other parts of the system. We're in a very fractured world at the moment. And science is one of those global cultures that can help stop the fractures becoming enormous chasms. Well, we could not agree more with you, Peter, and we could go really on and on because these are fundamental issues that will determine how well we fare or not after the crisis we have experienced. It has been our pleasure, Peter. Thank you for accepting to join us. My pleasure, Gabriela. We reached the end of this podcast. For more deep debate and data-driven solutions, follow the PolicyNet podcast channel on all major platforms.